I'm Roisin Tracy, Senior Media and Communications Officer at Fight for Sight, and this is Eye Research Matters, the podcast exploring the personal stories of those living with sight loss and the latest breakthroughs in eye research. It's a visual hallucination to someone who's blind, which sounds crazy, but it's so real. And that's the scary part. On today's programme, we're talking about a condition which causes visual hallucinations in people with sight loss, known as Charles Bonnet syndrome, or CBS. The kinds of things people see with CBS varies from simple repeated patterns or shapes to very complex hallucinations of people, objects and landscapes. Sometimes these visions can be quite alarming. For example, some people report seeing snakes crawling out of people's heads. Other people say they see gargoyles. Some see children in Victorian dress. As a result, CBS can cause huge distress to people who experience it and can therefore greatly impact on their quality of life. It's also important to note that the condition can happen to people with good mental health who have no history of psychiatric problems. There's currently not enough data to show how many people in the UK have Charles Bonnet syndrome, but it is estimated to be hundreds of thousands. In spite of this, scientists still don't understand why these hallucinations occur. And there's also very little awareness about the condition. Those who experience it often report that they were never made aware that this was something common in people with sight loss. Fight for Sight, together with partners Blind Veterans UK, Esme's Umbrella and Health and Care Research Wales, is funding two research projects at Cardiff University and University of Oxford to investigate the cause of the visual hallucinations associated with Charles Bonnet syndrome, with the hope of eventually finding a cure. One study will investigate the possibility that peripheral or side vision is more suggestible than central vision, while the second study will use a special type of MRI scan to measure the levels of chemicals in the visual areas of the brain to see whether they are abnormal in people with CBS. A few months ago, I sat down with Dr. Amit Patel and his guide dog Kika to talk about his experience of losing his sight suddenly and unexpectedly in 2013 and what it is like to live with Charles Bonnet syndrome. He started by telling me how he came to lose his sight and how that has impacted his life. I had no issues with anything with my corneas. I did wear glasses when I was about 10 years old, and I, but my prescriptions were very mild. They wouldn't really change. It was only when I was at med school. It was my final year at med school um, that I started getting migraines and headaches. Um, and I couldn't concentrate. And my eyes were a bit sore. So I put it down to prescriptions. I put, um, the optician actually said to me that it was because I had my head buried in books all day long. And we, we tried a different couple of prescriptions. Nothing really worked. And it was only then that they discovered that there was a bulge in my cornea. And that's telltale signs of keratoconus. Um, it's where your corneas kind of protrude out. So it stops the light from bouncing incorrectly and, and stops you getting the vision that you need to, to the clear vision anyway. So normally what they would do is they would put lenses on the ice just to push the corners back. And that was the option for us. But in my case, it had to be done very, very quickly being in final year med school. It was only a few years later that it got to the stage where I needed a corneal transplant. It was just, it was too much for lenses to kind of push back on the eye. So we did that. We did the first corneal transplant. All went really, really well. They don't do both eyes at the same time, just in case of complications. So about six months later, we decided to do the next eye. 
And that's when we started getting a rejection. And the rejection kind of spread across to the, the first day as well. So every nine months or so, we would be doing another corneal transplant. But they'll recover really quickly. Within three, four weeks, I'll be back at work again. And I went through about eight, nine of these. Then it got to the point where the NHS just said, look, we we can't do any more. Your body just can't accept it. You know, every time we do a transplant, your immune system gets stronger and it kind of rejects it. And every time the, the rejection is stronger and stronger and stronger and it's harder to control. So they said, look, this is the last time we're going to ever be able to do this. And I thought, all right, fingers crossed. Let's, let's give it a go. And all was well. Yeah. All was well for a good couple of years. No problem at all. I thought, we've got this underhand. You know, we, we keep, we're keeping an eye on it. I had my checkups every three months. And a couple of years later, it... it the onset of rejection started up again. And it was, in the back of my mind, I knew there was nothing the NHS could do, nothing the doctors could do here. We've tried everything. So I literally, I packed up my bags, went off to the States, found a doctor out there who can do a corneal transplant with different medications which weren't available over here. So I had that done. Came back. Absolutely perfect. No, no pain, nothing at all. I had 20-20 vision. It, it, was, it was absolutely fantastic for a while. Got married. And a year after getting married, I came, I came, I came home after work. It was a late, late night shift. Came home, had dinner with my wife. A little bit of pain in the eyes. Nothing, nothing too much. I just put it down to tiredness. Um, and what we didn't realize is that the nerves in the back of my eyes started pinching. So when I went to sleep, they burst. Um, so I woke up blind. I literally woke up. I went to sleep, foresighted, uh, woke up the next morning with blood down my cheeks. No pain at the time. It felt like there was grit in my eyes. Um, and that was it. That was that was the start of our start of our sight loss journey, I guess. And I mean, in all the time since you had been diagnosed with this eye condition, had you ever thought you would go blind? No, not at all. It's very, very rare for someone with cancer going to, to ever go down that stage. When I did lose my sight, it, because it happened so very quickly, it kind of came as a shock. We weren't prepared. We didn't have anything backed up. What if? You know, me and my wife never spoke about the what ifs. She was never there. She never saw me going through a rejection period. She, she was never there when I had corneal transplants. So to her, it was a huge shock, um, especially, you know, seeing her husband with blood pouring out of his eyes. So it was very dramatic, very, you know, but... Um, they say it's that, that's me. If I'm going to do anything, you do it with a big bang, you know. That, well, I didn't disappoint uh, that way, but I think also I kind of had I had my doctor's hat on, knowing full well that there really wasn't anything that anybody could do. But then you kind of don't want to be a doctor in that that sense. Of, you know, you, at that time you kind of want to be the patient with looking up to your doctor, saying, you know, what can we do? How can we fix this? And nobody really had an answer. Um, so it was let everything calm down, and then we'll assess. And when it did all calm down, when, when the pressure was enough for the doctors to actually see, they realised there was nothing anybody could do. You were working as a... It was a trauma doctor yeah, you trauma were. Doctor. So how has your life changed then since that morning that you woke up? Oh, so last time I went to work was the day before I lost my sight. Yeah, it, it, it was a Wednesday. It literally was just a midweek. Came home, had dinner with my wife. It was a, it was a normal thing, you know? And so life, it, was, it wasn't just my sight that was taken from me that day. It, was, it, was, it felt to me, it was my career, it was, it was my, it was everything. It was everything I worked up towards as well. And obviously just, just getting married recently, we were in that stage where we're thinking about family, thinking about what, where are we going to live, what are we going to do, you know, 
um, and kind of planning kind of married life, I guess. Um, so it was from being very, very happy to, to not knowing what happiness was, literally overnight. But the one thing nothing could prepare you for is how lonely it feels. I'm, I'm quite a, an active person. I'm, I'm very independent. I do what I want to do. It's when, I, when it just went dark, because that's, that's what happened, it literally just went, went black. You, d you don't even know your way around your own house in, in a weird way. You, 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 you forget that you do everything when you're sighted automatically. You just see things, you react to it. When you can't see, even taking a step forward, even walking in a straight line, was difficult. Nothing was in place. I think if I had known that in the future I may lose my sight, I would have a backup plan. I would have had something, but for it to come out of the blue, that was hard. That was really hard. Can you tell me a bit about Charles Bonnet syndrome? So this is something you developed after you went blind. Yeah, so I think I had about 20 minutes, 25 minutes of um, Charles Bonnet syndrome kind of awareness when I was at med school. I guess in my career, it never came up. I've never had to talk about it. I've never, I've never had a patient that, that suffered from it. So it was something that I'd forgotten. Um, and the first time, first time I'd actually had any hallucinations were probably when I was having my corneal transplants, when I was going through the rejections. Um, when I was recovering, I would have bandages in my eyes. Um, and they would normally put bandages in both eyes just so the other eyes doesn't have to strain. Um, and it, it was always when... I would, I would, I'd wake up and I'd say to maybe a nurse or someone, you know, has anybody been in my room? It felt like someone was looking over me. And I said, oh, no, I meant, you know, you've, nobody's been in your room for a few hours. And I always have a vision of someone kind of looking over me, not, not able to quite see their face, but that, that, that feeling that someone is literally just towering over me while I'm, while I'm recovering in bed. Um, and I kind of put it down to, you know, the meds, um, not, not feeling right. But it was after I lost my sight. I remember walking down the stairs, and even things like walking down the stairs when you're when you're going from high to low or low to high, you forget how much you use your sights. You you know the whole balance thing. So I'm holding onto the handrail kind of quite hard, and just suddenly, this girl appears in front of me, and it's it's the girl from the ring, the film, uh, the ring, the film, the ring, mm. where she's in her white out outfit. She's got her head kind of covered her face and she just suddenly appeared. And she appeared for about three or four seconds, but that was enough for me to fall down the stairs. And I thought, I thought, oh, I don't know, you know, why, why is that coming? I, I, I remember the, the picture so vividly that I remember she, it's, it's, it's the girl from The Ring and I used to love horror films. I used to love my horror films. So I just put it down to just being tired again, you know, maybe, maybe in the back of my head, I'm thinking of horror films or something because I'm in that kind of place. Because what I used to find is I never used to talk a lot. I lost my voice. I used to think about everything, but I never had the confidence to say anything, even how much pain I was in. So everything was kind of in my head and I felt like I was dealing with it myself and it was better that I deal with it than tell anybody else how much pain I was in. So I kind of put it down to that I'm in a really horrible place in my head. That's why I'm kind of going back to horrible things, you know, maybe things I've seen on TV. After, after that period, after, after that episode, I don't think I had anything for a couple of weeks. And then she started pairing again. You know, it could be anything from while I was sat down, while I was in bed. And she was always kind of floating, kind of walking, kind of floating towards me. And it got sinister and sinister. It just got to the point where she would open her mouth and I could feel she was going to scream. And that's when I kind of knew I'm, I'm, I'm having 
you know, hallucinations. I'm having visual hallucinations. And that was when I said to my wife, I think I'm having CBS. She said, what is it? And I kind of said, well, I, I think it's this. Can you, can you check? And, and, she, and she did her Googles and checked. And she said, yep, this, this kind of sounds right. And I just thought I have to deal with this. You know, there was, nothing, there was nothing that anybody can say or do to help. You know, there was no pill you could take for it to disappear. Even spoke to, to my GP. Yeah, well, well, there's not really anything we can do. There's no, there's no pathways to, you know, we, I can't send you to anybody. Um, you know, we can give you counseling sessions, but that's not really going to work. That's not really going to take this girl away um, from appearing. So it is very much learn to deal with it by myself. And I did. Uh, every time she appeared, if I was at home, I, it would be go away. You know, I would scream or shout, go away. I would, I would look at something else. We might, you know, turn around. I, I would distract myself. I would start singing a song or anything just so I could block her. But you can't do that when you're in public. No. Could you imagine being on a bus or a train and the girl appears and you're, you're waving your arms all over the place, you know? Um, so when, when she ever appeared in public, it was grip my cane really hard. If I'm, if I'm walking, I would try and find somewhere to stop, back myself up against the wall, look down. I would do, I'll close my cane or just distract myself in some way. If I was on a bus, if I was sat down, I couldn't do any of that. So it, it would be the sweats would start. And it's, and it's crazy. And I would get really angry with myself because I know she's not there. But yet my head is telling me she's there. And... It's it's so real, and and the funny thing is that you know people will say to you, oh, it's, she's not really there, you know, she can't harm you, but when you can't see all day long, and and your head is playing tricks with you, you your mind is so powerful. I can feel like if I put my hand out, I can touch her, and I've never ever had the courage to do that, because if I put my hand out and say there was someone standing in front of me and I grabbed them accidentally, to me, I've touched her, you know, that would freak me out. So I, I just, I kind of, hands in my pocket. It's, um, it's a scary thing. But it made it all, all so much worse when, when I had my son. Uh, it'll be, you know, changing a nappy and she will arrive. And the last thing I want to do is throw my hands in the air when I've got a month-old baby on a changing table or when I'm out and about with him. So it is very much... I had to learn to, to suppress that. But the lovely thing is that when Kika came into my life, she, she had probably about a 10-second notice that this is going to happen. Now, whether it's my body giving out clues, whether my heartbeat's going up or my pulse is racing or, or I start to, to sweat, it, it, I don't know what it is, but she could be sleeping and she would suddenly wake up. And if I'm sat down, she'd put her head on my lap and the moment she put her, puts her head on my lap, the girl will appear. Mm-hmm. And Kiko will start breathing really heavy. She will start going, <sighs> uh, that really kind of doggy, kind of panting will start just to tell me that she's there and I'm not alone. And that's enough for me to be distracted, for her to just kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. But um, there's never, I, I, I can never say that, you know, she will disappear after a minute or after five minutes. She's been, she's been there for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, half an hour. Um, I've given talks where she's been standing right next to me and I've been in front of um, a thousand people and I have to not focus on her and focus on what I'm doing. It's a visual hallucination to someone who's blind, which sounds crazy. Yeah. But it's so real and that's the scary part. And I, I, I work with um, a lot of people who are visually impaired and it's only after I tell them I suffer this that people say, oh, well, I go through this. But I don't want to say anything because 
my family might think I'm crazy or I'll go to the doctors and they'll think I'm crazy, you know, so they kind of live with it because they don't know it. And also, if you're visually impaired, it's hard to research things. Yeah. You know, if, you don't, if you've never heard of Charles Bonnet syndrome, what do you Google? You know, visual hallucinations for the blind. People don't want to do that because they don't want to hear what will come up. Um, so they deal with it themselves. And when you first started experiencing this, I mean, obviously you were a doctor and you, you had heard of this before, but how did other people react when you told them? They said, oh, you know, think of something else. I mean, think of flowers. Like, well, it doesn't always work like that. You know, it's Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's people see, people see lots of shapes and patterns. People will see gargoyles. Um, there, was, there actually was a lady who who was put into a nursing home after she'd lost her sight because her family found it really difficult. And she wrote a journal every single day. And every time her meal was delivered to her, she would never eat it. She would leave it alone. Um, and she actually passed away down to, due to uh, malnutrition. And it was only when her family discovered her journal that she wrote in there that every time her food was delivered to her, she saw worms on her plate. Even though she was visually impaired, she saw worms on her plate so she didn't want to eat it. But she couldn't tell anybody because they thought, she, and in her journal it says that I didn't want to be known, you know, known as that crazy woman, that crazy blind woman. So she kept it to herself. So it's, if people know about it, people talk about it, if, if consultants say this may occur, you know, if you're, if you're going through sight loss, at least it kind of gives someone that, that, that knowledge, that, that reassurance that they're not going crazy and it is something that occurs to, you know, during sight loss. Um, but it doesn't happen to everybody, um, you know, and they also say it comes and it goes. I've had it over five years, five, six years. This, you know, I, for me, I don't see, I don't see this girl ever di disappearing, but you kind of, you have your mechanisms, your coping mechanisms, you know what to do and what, you know, what not to do. I know my triggers. I know that if I'm in a... So I have one tiny little pixel in the top right-hand corner of my eye that lets in light, and it's, the, it's probably a, a millimetre, if that, so I can tell you if it's light or dark, and that's it. And I find that if something white shoots across that site, it'll trigger it. So I could be on a train on the way home, I could be walking down the street, and, and, and maybe a bit of light can trigger it. So it could happen any time of the day. Um, it happens anything from two, three times a day to, to 30, 40 times a day. You, it, you just can't prepare for it. You hear stories of, of people who experience CBS and they go to their ophthalmologist and, or their doctor and they're kind of brushed off a little bit. Why is that? I don't know. It's, I think it's because even the doctors don't really know about it. Um, there's, you know, there's not really a lot of research that has gone into it. If you imagine how many people are visually impaired and, and you know, even if you think of 25% of those people suffering of CBS, that's quite a big number of people. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that's really hard to research. Not everybody wants to talk about it. Um, it it's different with everybody. There's not an underlying trigger that can be said, you know, that, oh, because you've gone through this, you know, you've gone through sight loss due to this, you may get it. It doesn't work that way. It's an unknown. And I think I think with a lot of doctors, we're, we're people of science. You know, we, we kind of want to know something and know how to work it out. Um, where CBS is kind of just, it's, it's a floating, it kind of is out there. Nobody knows what to do or what to say or how to deal with it. But I think it's more about awareness. Mm. If we can make people aware of it, it's easier to talk. Or, or even, even if you're sat in a room of peers 
who are going through it and you talk about your experiences maybe that the way someone kind of deals with it might help someone else but until you're actually you're you, you know until you actually talk about it uh, sometimes even talking about it is a release you know, if, if your family don't really understand it and you don't know anybody else, if someone else is going through it and you're talking about it, you could be assured that, you know, when they say, oh, I understand what you're going through, they actually do understand what you're going through. And they understand that, you know, it is crazy that you you see patterns or you see, see uh, you know, gargoyles or you see witches flying, but you're not crazy. You know, because sometimes you have to tell yourself you're not crazy. And I do. I, I, right at the beginning, I'm like, am I going crazy? Is this, is this, is this my, my mind just playing tricks because I can't see anymore? So, you know, it's, it is hard, but I think, I think it's the, the key is awareness. Yeah. Definitely awareness. Yeah. And do you think eye research has a part to play in helping those? Absolutely. Guess? You know, you know, it's, um, with anything, research is the key. And, but with research, nothing happens overnight. It, it takes time. It takes, it, you know, it takes a long time. But the fact that people would start researching it means that people are talking about it you know it, it's it's coming out it's you know even even if it's in medical journals you know consultants are talking about it they it's on the back of their minds as well and you know you never know there, there might be a pill that that cures it or there might be a, a way of actually coping with it but you don't know until you research okay i mean we'll leave it there thank you so much my pleasure This interview with Amit Patel that you've just listened to was recorded back in early March, before the COVID-19 pandemic took hold. The lockdown has only exacerbated Amit's experience of CBS, and he says he has had a lot more hallucinations since then, which shows now, more than ever, we need to fund more research into this condition. The evidence shows that COVID is also impacting on medical research, so please help us continue vital research that will help Amit and others who experience this condition by visiting our website at fightforsight.org.uk and donating. Alternatively, you can find us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at fightforsightuk.